Good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean, good music? It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home. Did you have a band? Good or bad? It's a great band. It's a bad band. It's like pizza, baby. It's good no matter what. There's music in the air. During the 1950s and 60s, Chess Records was the place to record the blues, but it also played a major role in shaping rock and roll. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Kahn. Jim and I will talk about the history and influence of the great Chess Records, and later we review the solo debut from the blur singer Damon Albarn. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. I say the joint was rockin'. Sounds so sweet. I had to take me a chance. Rose out of my seat. I just had to dance. Started moving my feet. Oh, the clap of my hands. I see the joint was rocking. Going round and round. Getting real and better rocking. What a crazy sound. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRogatis, and that's the Rolling Stones with the song Around and Around. It's from their second album, 12 by 5, and was recorded right here in Chicago at the legendary Chess Records. Now, those Chess sessions and the album itself are turning 50 this year, so we wanted to revisit our 2012 conversation about chess and the role it played in the career of not just the Stones, but so many musicians. In fact, Around and Around was originally written and performed by chess artist Chuck Berry as the B-side to his hit Johnny B. Good. Now, even if you don't know the whole chess record story, you can already see there's a lot of dots to be connected here. You know, Greg, I think we take chess for granted because we're here in Chicago, you and me. Between the two of us, we've spent 50 years as rock critics and journalists in this town, and neither of us has ever had the experience of touring chess records until a few years back when there was a rare public radio event there. We got to lead a group of our Chicago listeners through the studio, and it was just magical. You know, it's really sad that Motown in Detroit and Sun Records down south, you know, these are museums now, Mm -hmm. as well they should be. But Chess Records, it's nominally open to the public, but really you hardly ever have the opportunity to get in there. This was a rare treat for us, and it got us thinking, we really should do a show about the Chess Records story, especially because there have been a couple of good books about it in recent years, including Nadine Cahotis' Spinning Blues into Gold, and two movies, Cadillac Records, starring none other than Beyonce, and uh, Who Do You Love? Both films came out in 2008. So we're way overdue to look at chess. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt about it. The uh, influence of the label goes on to this day. There arguably would not have been a uh, swinging London scene in the 60s without the influence of what was going on in Chicago in the 50s and 60s. The story starts with these two brothers, Leonard and Phil Chess. Born in Poland, Leonard in 1917, Phil in 1921. The family moved to Chicago in 1928. They were just boys. The family ran a junkyard in a Southside neighborhood adjacent to a black neighborhood. So Leonard and Phil grew up hearing the sounds of the gospel church wafting into their workplace and into their neighborhood. So they understood black culture by living so close to it. 
Leonard himself was a businessman first and foremost. He saw that there was money to be made in these neighborhoods, and he opened up a series of liquor stores in the 40s and eventually opened up a nightclub there in 1946, the Macambo Lounge. He was a connoisseur, though, of music as well. He understood that if this nightclub was to work, he needed to make it a place that was about the music, a place that the musicians wanted to hang out in, and it worked. He got the cream of Chicago's blues crop to attend his joint, Willie Dixon first and foremost among them, but a lot of national acts passing through town would go there for late-night drinks to attend the jam sessions. He understood and saw the appeal that this music had in that community. Very significant fact about the African-American population in Chicago between 1940 and 1950. It increased 77% with the diaspora from the plantations in the south to the factories in the north. And as a result, you had a half million African-Americans in Chicago by 1950, a ready-made audience for this style of music. Significant event, 1945. Muddy Waters is moving into Chicago. He's opening up for Big Bill Brunzi in the clubs. Muddy Waters goes electric. Had some hard days Out in the falling rain Yes, I had some hard days Everybody talks about Dylan going electric in 65. Well, Muddy Waters went electric in 45. The reason? Those raucous nightclubs. He needed to be heard. He was already an established musician. He had been recorded by Alan Lomax on a plantation in the South in the early 40s. But when he came to Chicago... That acoustic stuff wasn't flying in those noisy clubs, so he had to get an electric guitar. And that was one of the things that would, I don't want to get ahead of the story, but without Muddy plugging in, mm-hmm. you'd never have rock and roll. And another thing, Ike Turner early on, the Chesses had a, a hand in uh, Rocket 88, which would be other key step toward rock and roll. You women have heard of jalopies, you've heard the noise they make, but let me introduce my new Rocket 88. Yes, it's great, just one way. Everybody likes my Rocket 88. Baby, we'll ride in style, moving all along. What we're seeing here is the foundation of not only the sound of electric instruments moving in, but the attitude that would inform rock and roll in later years. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and we're discussing the landmark blues label Chess Records. Jim, later on we're going to talk about Chess Records' role in shaping rock, but first we should point out what I think are the four key elements in this chain of Chess Records' ascent. It started out as a label, 1947, Leonard Chess brought into Aristocrat Records and slowly but surely ended up buying more and more of the company until it became his own. In 1950, it morphed into Chess Records, which he brought in his brother Phil to help run. Meanwhile, he was in the studio consistently with this local talent, Muddy Waters first and foremost among them. I Can't Be Satisfied helped put Chess on the map in a sense, one of the first singles on that aristocrat label, Leonard Chess said, hey, this stuff is going to sell. Let's do some more of this stuff. In 1948, even bigger single, Rolling Stone. Well, I wish 
song that gives the Rolling Stones their name, Rolling Stone Magazine its name, and essentially Muddy Waters is often rolling as a major northern superstar. But he's still recording as pretty much a solo act. It's basically Muddy Waters and his electric guitar in the studio. Meanwhile, he's in the clubs and he's recruiting talent. They hear that voice, that guitar, they want to be part of his band. So slowly but surely he starts accumulating talent. Little Walter Jacobs on harmonica, Jimmy Rogers on guitar, Elgin Evans on drums, Otis Spann on piano. He's got this amazing blues band cooking in the clubs. Leonard Chess was a smart man and also a conservative man in some ways. It took him a while to get to the idea of, well, let's put Muddy in the studio with his guys rather than mine. Slowly but surely, he was assembling studio musicians around Muddy. Eventually, he let Muddy Waters start recording with his band. And I think a big turning point for Muddy was in 1954, January 54, Chess Records was up and running at this point. Leonard Chess says to Muddy, go ahead, let's record you and your band. The added caveat here was Willie Dixon, who was basically the in-house producer and in-house bass player for Chess Records at that point, was going to add a song to the template here. So Muddy, for the first time, was in the studio with Willie Dixon recording one of his songs, Hoochie Coochie Man. The gypsy woman told my mother... Before I was born, you got a boy child coming. He's gonna be a son of a gun. He's gonna make pretty women's jump and shout. Then the world wanna know what this all about. But you know I'm here. Willie Dixon's approach was he heard that Muddy Waters voice. He said, this guy shouldn't be singing sad songs. We need some pet blues, what he Mm. called some upbeat, energetic, machismo stuff here. So he laid a song on Muddy that Muddy probably never would have sang on his own. Muddy was a much more subtle artist. There was nothing very subtle about Hoochie Coochie Man. But there it was, a magical moment with that band and that song in the studio that day. I really think, Jim that that moment in 1954 was a significant turning point, not only in the history of Muddy Waters, but in the course of the label, and also in marking a huge influence on future generations of rock and rollers who heard that moment and said, you know what, we want a piece of that action. We want that machismo, that attitude, that swagger that you hear in this particular song. So besides Waters, there were three other significant artists in the chess record stable at that point. Just as powerful a vocalist, and in some ways even more over the top, was Howlin' Wolf, a.k.a. Chester Burnett. He was a little bit older than Muddy, 
by the time he came to Chicago, he was already a fully seasoned artist in many ways. He'd done some recording with Sam Phillips down in Memphis already, that famous label that founded Elvis Presley. But then he started recording exclusively with Chess beginning in 1953. And one of his key moves, he recorded with various musicians throughout his career and, and, and toured with various bands, is that he had to have one guy at his side at all times, and that was Hubert Sumlin on guitar. So just about every classic track you hear from Howlin' Wolf on chess was accompanied by Hubert Sumlin as the guitar player. And a great moment for them was the song Smokestack Lightning in 1956. Classic Wolf track in that it has literally no chord changes, you know? <laughs> it's all about that little Sumlin riff and that inimitable Howlin' Wolf vocal. It is a bit of a howl. It's almost like a yodel, but no one else could do it like Howlin' Wolf could. Now, Greg, you were taking us through some of the touchstones of the early years in the 50s, first with Muddy Waters and then Howlin' Wolf, and now we come to Little Walter. That's right, Jim. Marion Walter Jacobs. He was part of Muddy Waters' band, but he was also a solo artist in his own right. And the thing about Jacobs was that he was a virtuoso harmonica player. I mean, people were making comparisons to him and Charlie Parker on the saxophone. Mm. That's what he did with the blues harmonica. He was so good that he played on countless sessions for other artists as well as his own. But Dixon saw a great artist in his own right and actually wrote one of Chess Records' biggest songs for Little Walter to sing. It was called My Babe in 1955. My baby don't stand no cheating, my babe. Oh yeah, she don't stand no cheating, my babe. She don't stand no cheating. She don't stand none of that midnight creeping, my baby. True little baby, my baby. One of Walter's uh, innovations was to amplify his instrument. Just as Muddy made the switch from acoustic to electric guitar, little Walter was tired of having the harmonica play a background role in those clubs. So his little innovation was to cup it in his hands alongside the harmonica so that the harmonica could be heard as a lead instrument right alongside the voice and guitar in those ensembles. Of course, the other master harmonica player and the other great chess artist of those early years, Sonny Boy Williamson II, Alec Rice Miller, 
actually born in Louisiana. Most of these other guys were from Mississippi. And again, about a decade or two older than some of these other musicians. He had been playing all over the South for a long time, but enjoyed his biggest success once he got up north and once he started recording with chess. His classic song for chess, among many, was his number three hit from 1955, Don't Start Me to Talking. Well, I'm going down the roads and stopping Fannie Mae. Gonna tell Fanny what I heard. A boyfriend said, Don't start me talking. I'll tell everything I know. I'm gonna break up this signifying, cause somebody's got to go. Now, the great story about Sonny Boy is that after this great success with chess, he started going on tour in Europe, and this kind of leads us up to this rock and roll generation, Jim. He was a volatile guy. I mean, these were somewhat unstable individuals, you know? Well, you, you know, you, you can't neglect the fact that Muddy, Howlin' Wolf, Dixon, these were big men. Yes. I mean, really, really big men, and as you and I found out, chess is a small place. <laughs> yeah. There was no air conditioning because yeah. it would have interfered with the noise. What everybody talks about with chess, and this was gone when we were there, is the smell. Yeah. The testosterone and the sweat in those rooms. Oh, absolutely. And Sonny Boy epitomized that. And more so than other ones, he was sort of rooted in that southern culture. Whereas Howlin' Wolf became a relatively sophisticated guy. I mean, he went back and got his diploma from high school. He learned how to read and write later on in his life. Muddy Waters himself was a very well-spoken man. But Sonny Boy, there was a little bit of that deep south, eye-for-an-eye culture in him all along. When he went to Europe in in the 60s, the story goes that he once set fire to his hotel room because he tried to cook a rabbit with his coffee maker. (laughs) And then apparently he had to leave the tour because he stabbed somebody. So, uh, you know, Sonny Boy was carrying that reputation around with him. So a wide variety of artists, but huge, oversized personalities recording for Chess Records in the 50s. She gets back home, tell her husband a lie, don't start me talking, I'll tell everything I know. I'm gonna break up this signal fight, somebody's got to go. That is Sonny Boy Williamson with Don't Start Me to Talkin', recorded in 1955 at Chess Records. We'll continue discussing the legacy of Chess Records in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Then Greg and I review the long-awaited solo album from Damon Albarn of Blur and a new release from singer and chef Khalees. She borrowed some money, go to the beauty shop. She hopped his horn, she began to stop. Said, take me, baby, around the block. I'm going to the beauty shop where I can get my hair side. Don't stop me talking, I'll tell everything I know. Well, break up the single crime.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that is Little Walter's Blues with a Feeling, recorded in 1953 at Chess Records here in Chicago. We're talking about the history of that great blues label and its influence on rock and roll. Greg, before the break, you were telling us a great story, a great myth, perhaps, about Sonny Boy Williamson. And before we segue into the rock and roll years at Chess, tell us about another legendary tale, the one about when the Rolling Stones came up to 2120 South Michigan and found... Yes, they found Muddy Waters painting the walls, apparently, in his off days... Apparently, Muddy would just come up and sit around the studio and help out with whatever was needed. The Stones were aghast that here was the great Muddy Waters helping them carry their gear into the studio <laughs> when they came to America for the first time. I and mean, this was the promised land for them. You know, it was interesting. When the Stones finally got to America in the summer of 64, their greatest goal was to go to Chicago to the Chess Studios at 2120 South Michigan Avenue and record there because they wanted that sound, and they got it. Uh, Ron Mallow, the engineer, was there, the one who had recorded a lot of the uh, chess artists, and he gave the Stones that Chicago sound, that grit that they were looking for on those early Stones records. But it was interesting that they found that these musicians were just sort of like regular guys. They weren't these icons that they heard on the record. They were just regular Southside people who were kind of looking at them as curiosity, saying, what are these long-haired guys from England doing here? You know, yeah. why are they here? Obviously an attitude that Mick Jagger and Keith Richards have not maintained. Yes. You know, they wanted to be royalty, and they are. We're a decade into the story. Obviously, Chess is the most important label in the history of the blues, but there were other sounds that they began to explore. There was some great jazz music came out on mm-hmm. Chess. Later on, there was the soul era, epitomized by Hedda James. I mean, what a voice. But I want to talk in particular about the rock and roll years. 1955, this fella, Ellis McDaniel, who had built himself a homemade guitar in Woodshop yeah. in one of the Chicago public schools, comes in. And he's got this song, Uncle John. Uncle John don't shuck no corn. Uncle John got daughters ain't never been, right? And he's laying it down, and something's not going right. The recording engineer says, you know, we got we to come up with some other lyrics. And the story goes, Leonard Chess, or the recording engineer, says, you know, how about Bo Diddley? Say, say, say Bo Diddley. That kind of is in the same cadence. I don't know what it means. It doesn't mean anything. And, of course, Bo Diddley becomes one of the founding fathers of rock and roll. That rhythm, that groove, that unique guitar sound. And arguably, you could say of hip-hop as well. Sure. You know, a lot of those early doubt. Bo Diddley tracks, right? Now, when I was a little boy, at the age of five, I had something in my pocket, keep a lot of folks alive. Now I'm a man, May 21, you know baby, we can have a lot of fun, I'm a man, I spell M.
Almost at the same time, a guy from St. Louis winds up on the scene, Chuck Berry. He has a song that Leonard Chess likes. It's called Ida Red. It's got a good rhythm. It's got a killer hook. But something's missing. You know, Ida Red just isn't flowing off the tongue. The story goes that Leonard Chess sees one of the secretaries with a makeup kit, and he says to Chuck, you should sing Maybelline. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Maybelline becomes another of the key singles where you say rock and roll really starts here with Bo Diddley with Chuck Berry. Maybelline, why can't you be true? Oh, Maybelline, why can't you be true? You done started doing the things you used to do As I was motivating over the hill I saw Maybelline in a coupe de A Cadillac rolling on an open road Nothing out to run my V8 boat A Cadillac doing about 95 Me bumper to bumper rolling side to side Maybelline, why can't you be true? Oh Maybelline, why can't you be true? You done started back doing the things you I think this is a good time to mention that there's a fair amount of controversy about the way that Leonard and Phil Chess did business. When Maybelline comes out on a 45, Chuck Berry is surprised to see that he wrote this song with a guy named Alan Freed and another guy <laughs> named Russ Fredo. Yeah. Russ Fredo was the landlord at 2120 South Michigan, and the Chess brothers owed him some cash, so they cut him in on the song. Alan Freed, of course, was the disc jockey, mm -hmm. who, in addition to getting songwriting credit on Chuck's song, was getting paid $100 a week to play mm. the songs the Chess brothers were delivering. It's a complicated question, the whole payola issue. I mean, you know, thank God Alan Freed played Maybelline. Mm -hmm. It's one of the best songs in history. Mm -hmm. We'd have no rock and roll without it. And a lot of people defend the Chess Brothers by saying, yeah, Leonard screwed people, but he screwed them honest. <laughs> Part of it was an inherent cheapness. There are stories that Leonard Chess would fix the toilet himself in the studios rather than pay a plumber six ninety five. Mm. There was that paternalism. If we hadn't given one of the artists a Cadillac, which is where Cadillac Records took the name, he would have just drank all the money or gambled it away. Complicated issues, well dealt with in the books about chess records. We're concentrating on the music, but we just had to mention that. In any event, Greg, it was the rock and roll era that took chess to the next level. They had been selling in the tens of thousands of copies of records of those classic blues artists. Suddenly, they were selling hundreds of thousands mm -hmm. and eventually a million. You know, at the height of the chess story, 200 employees putting out 200 records a year and making $3 million a year. But it wouldn't last much longer, really just another decade. By 1969, Leonard Chess was dead. The company was sold for a couple of million dollars, and it's really the end of the chess story. But if we look at the, the role that that label had played in forming the blues and mm -hmm. giving it a shape and an aesthetic in many of its key records, and then in rock and roll, on top of the jazz and soul contributions, you got to say, it's right up there with Sun Records or Motown. Without a doubt, one of the most extraordinary labels of the 20th century. And in those two decades, as you said, Jim, uh, basically created a template for a lot of the music that we're still hearing, you know, here in the 21st century. Uh, how did these artists influence the future of music? Uh, let me count the ways. I mean, first of all, you mentioned hip-hop, which I thought was a great parallel, Jim. The fact that when you think about Bo Diddley's music or Holland Wolf's vocals or Muddy Waters' phrasing, you can clearly hear that, that megaphone style of Chuck D at Public Enemy or early run DMC, all the way up through the contemporary stuff, that swagger, that braggadocio, that was all in some of those early chess singles by these urban blues artists.
When you think about songwriting, Willie Dixon alone supplied about a two or three decades worth of hits for subsequent rock acts. I mean, you think about the Rolling Stones covering his Little Red Rooster or Led Zeppelin doing his You Shook Me or the Doors doing Backdoor Man, Cream doing Spoonful, Hendrix and the Allman Brothers covering Hoochie Coochie Man, Foghat doing I Just Want to Make Love to You. I mean, Willie Dixon basically supplied several generations of rockers with songs they're still recording and still making royalties off of. Last but not least, the guitar stylists. When you think about that impassioned Chicago blues style, it was interesting to draw the distinctions. There were various styles of blues guitar playing, but the toughest of them all was that Chicago blues sound. When you think about the sound of Eric Clapton and Peter Green and Jeff Beck in 60s swing in London, they were directly referencing the hardest edge sounds that they could find, and they all were coming out of Chicago. So the influence was huge, instrumentally, vocally, uh, lyrically, and with the songs. A lot of stuff out of the Chess Records stable in the 50s came to be a big part of rock and roll in the 60s, 70s, and beyond. Greg, to wrap up our discussion of Chess Records, we each wanted to uh, pick a song that we love to highlight the legacy of chess might be a little bit lesser known than some of those hits, which are endless. I want to talk about Bobby Charles, originally Bobby Charles Guidry of Abbeville, Louisiana. He was a Cajun and a uh, great talent who started making music as a teenager. He recorded a song variably called Later Alligator or See You Later Alligator <laughs> or Just Alligator and sent it up north and Chess put it out. And it was a minor hit, became a much bigger hit for Bill Haley, who covered it, had a smash with it. But the Chess brothers were excited because they got the publishing money, so they were making a lot of money. So they flew this kid up, this incredible voice, and, and they were confident he was going to be one of the next big stars. They pick him up at the airport, or Phil picks him up, and he gets off the plane, and Phil says, oh my God, my <laughs> brother is going to freak. He's this white blonde-haired, blue-eyed mm-hmm. teenager kid. They were confident. He, he was an older black guy. That <laughs> voice, that voice could not have been coming from mm-hmm. this person who was walking off the plane. He had a pretty distinguished career, would go on to write some hits for Fats Domino. He's in The Last Waltz, singing behind Ray Charles, mm-hmm. but you don't really see him in the movie. And he just died early this year in January. Let's play Bobby Charles's Alligator here on Sound Opinions.
saw my baby walking with another man today. Well, I saw my baby walking with another man today. When I asked her what's the matter, this is what I heard her say. See you later, alligator. After one crocodile. Charles with See You Later Alligator on Sound Opinions. Good choice, Mr. DeRogatis. Digging deep in that chess catalog. What a treasure trove of artists they recorded in the 50s and 60s. You know, another artist that was destined for obscurity in the chess vaults because he really didn't quite fit in with Leonard Chess's vision of what the blues was. And it's hard to believe that this is the case now, but I'm talking about Buddy Guy. In the 60s, He couldn't get an audience with Leonard Chess to record an album or record a single. He had to beg for studio time. They loved having Buddy in the studio as a sideman. He was a great guitar player. But in terms of a recording artist in his own right, he had real difficulty getting established with Chess. And here's the deal with that. When Buddy came to Chicago from Louisiana in the mid-50s, he was already a step or two behind that pantheon of Chicago blues acts. He kind of knew he had to prove himself all over again with people like Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and Otis Rush already on the scene. So he needed to make a name for himself desperately in the clubs and establish a guitar style and a showmanship and a persona that was a cut above in terms of just being a little bit more over the top. It was blues and anticipating what rock and roll would become. A lot of people said Hendrix took a lot of tricks from Buddy Guy. When Buddy Guy went to Europe in the 60s, he caused a sensation because Clapton, Beck, Hendrix all saw him over there and they couldn't believe what this guy was doing with the guitar, the kind of showmanship, and also just the fierceness, the dynamics of the guitar playing way above and beyond anything they'd heard on any blues record before or since in a lot of ways. He was ahead of his time. He was so ahead of his time that Leonard really refused to record him. Nonetheless, there was a few moments where Buddy got into the studio, was able to record a few singles, and you can hear, it's like a stallion kicking at his stall, you know, like ready to bust out. He's being harnessed, but he's still got this talent that he wants to show the world. And even though the guitar style was somewhat muted, they really wouldn't let him take off. You know, no five-minute solos for Buddy like he was playing in the clubs. It was like, okay, you gotta, you're, you're just playing fills here, Buddy. But then you could hear him making up for it with the vocals, the, the intensity of the vocals. And I think you can really hear it on one of his first chess singles in 1960. It's a song called First Time I Met the Blues, and it was written by the piano player in the song, Little Brother Montgomery. 
an intense, intense vocal performance by Buddy Guy and those knife-like guitar fills. You could already hear the guy he would become, the tremendously influential guitar player he would become on this very early track. And in addition, I love the way the track personifies the blues, like he's being stalked by the blues. He cannot escape its grip. First time I met the blues, Buddy Guy from 1960 on Sound Opinions. The first time I met the blues He was always walking, I was walking down through the woods Yeah, the first time, the first time I met the blues Don't you know I was walking, I was walking down That's First Time I Met the Blues by Buddy Guy, one of the standout artists on the chess roster in its later days, and one of the musicians who would help bring the blues to rock and roll. If you want to talk about your favorite chess recordings, call 888-859-1800. Next up, we'll review two new albums, Everyday Robots from Damon Albarn and Food from Khalees. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. I walk 47 miles of barbed wire. I use a cobra snake for a necktie. I got a brand new house on the roadside made from rattlesnake hide. I got a brand new chimney made on top, made out of a human skull. Now come on, take a little walk with me, Arlene, and tell me who do you love? Who do you love? Who do you love? Just 22 and I don't mind dying Who do you love? Who do you love? Who do you love? Who do you love? I rode around the town, use a rattlesnake whip Take it easy, Arlie, don't give me no lip Who do you love? Who do you love? Who do you love? Who do you love? 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim Deergatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that is a little bit of the title track from the first Damon Albarn solo album, Everyday Robots. Greg, it's hard to imagine that Damon Albarn has never given us a solo album in all of these years. The 90s spent leading Blur, whose catalog I would put up against any other act from the alternative era in terms of its depth. And then the many diverse projects that have followed Blur. Gorillas, super successful. The Good, the Bad, and the Queen. Uh, efforts like Mali music, going to Africa and playing with the African music and electronic combination. The opera, Dr. D, which we panned on this show. He has not always hit gold. But only now, this late in his career, at age 46, is this singer and songwriter giving us a solo album. Clearly, he loves collaboration, and there are some notable names on this record. Bats for Lashes, producer Richard Russell, with whom Albarn made that great record for Bobby Womack in 2012, and Brian Eno. We'll give our opinions on this record in a minute, but first let's hear some more of it. Lonely Press Play, a song by Damon Albarn from Everyday Robots on Sound Opinions. That is Lonely Press Play from Damon Albarn's first solo record, Everyday Robots. Jim, I think uh, for hardcore fans, there's going to be some fascinating personal details. I mean, you know, he touches on everything from his heroin addiction in the 90s to seeing that little piece of graffiti on a wall, Modern Life is Rubbish, that basically changed his life and gave Blur the title of its first great album. And I appreciate the fact that he's diving into his past in this way. Although the notion that this is a solo record and that it's his most personal record, you know, I think he was making really personal music with gorillas, too. Despite that cartoon exterior, Mm. there was a lot of emotion and a lot of Damon in those records as well. 
And I think what's lacking here is the lack of a foil like Gorillaz. With Gorillaz, he could hide behind that cartoon and write some really great songs that also had a personal bent to them. Here he seems cowed by this idea, well, it's personal, so I'm going to make the whole album sound in this kind of low-key, wistful, sad, very slow-moving brooding kind of record. There are nice touches here. I like the fact that it's off-kilter percussion, that it's non-traditional percussion, but it's awfully slow-moving. I really miss Albarn's gift for melody, for hooks, for great songs, for surprise. I'm not hearing that in this record. It's, it's a trash it record for me. I could not disagree with you more. I think that this is a masterpiece, this record. Wow. A Dark Night of the Soul classic. Albarn singing over this heartbeat percussion, these drones, and this tinkling piano. It, you know, it is in a particular mood, but all the songs hold together. And the whole record's theme, Greg, is that line from Lonely Press Play, accepting that you live with uncertainty if you're lonely, press play. Music has gotten this guy through everything in his life, and he is pouring his heart out about it more directly than he ever has. This is a wonderful record, and it's definitely a buy it. That is Khalees with a song called Jerk Ribs from her new album, Food. Khalees debuted at the age of 20 in 1999 and started working with the Neptunes, Pharrell Williams. The first three albums that she made in her career were with the Neptunes, but was never really that big in the United States. Huge in the U.K. She actually had a gold record in the U.K., but really didn't establish any footing in the U.S. until that top ten hit, Milkshake, in 2003. Now she's back with David Sytek of TV on the Radio. Interesting choice as a producer. Her sixth album, also reflecting her out-of-studio activities. She is a certified chef, and she's hosting the show on the cooking channel, Saucy and sweet. So you're hearing some of that influence in some of the titles on this record, not to mention the title of the album itself, Food. Here's Khalees with a track from it called Breakfast on Sound Opinions. I want to say thank you Thank you You've been more than just a man You've really been my friend And I want to say thank you Thank you For putting me to the test I know you could have left me behind When I feel like I'm knocked back off my feet And I swear I'm all alone You're the one who carries me Simple thing like giving me your peace You're strong enough to be Exactly what I need
That is Khalees with Breakfast from her new album, Food, on Sound Opinions. Greg, I love that song. And in case you're wondering, food is both literal for Khalees and metaphorical. The chorus of that tune, so much of who we are, is from who first taught us how to love. And to her, cooking is love. I was a huge fan of Khalees from the beginning of her career. Two fine albums of neo-soul, very much in the Erica Badu vein, right? And then there was Milkshake, all right? And that is a better hit, I think, even than Pharrell's Happy or Blurred Lines. It was That's just an immortal pop song. My milkshake brings all the boys to the yard and they're like, it's better than yours. Damn right, it's better than yours. I could teach you, but I have to charge my... People were surprised when she turned from pop and there were those experimental dabbling years and she was going to Lake Cordon Blue. She's recovering from splitting with Nas. And now I think she's putting food and music back together again mm. as effectively as she did with Milkshake, except in the neo-soul vein. Oh my God, I love those horns whenever they come in. Talk about Saucy and Sweet. This is a great album. I love it. It's a buy it. Jim, the other thing that food makes me think of, especially when you're eating a fine meal, is the layers of the flavors. You know, the taste is multitudinous, right? Mm. And the same thing with this record. I think the whole idea that the tempos don't vary a lot, but what they do within that relatively narrow range, all the colors that are there musically are what make this record. I think SciTech does a great job of blending old and new school influences, the organic and the electronic. You've got strings and guitars, but you also got keyboards and loops. You got Latin percussion, those African high life horns you were talking about, blues and gospel influences. other thing that's key is that they don't shy away from Khalees' voice. It's not an overpowering voice. It's not a voice you'd say, oh, that needs to be at the center of the record. But SciTech is saying, yes, it needs to be at the center of this record. There's something very distinctive and versatile about that voice. She's got a dark, sultry, sometimes she's a little ragged, you know. It reminds me a little bit of Mary J. Blige. She doesn't hit all the notes precisely. Yeah. But there's an urgency to her voice on that song, Floyd, when she's talking about, seems like no one is surprising anymore. It's not that I'm ungrateful, just a little bored. I want to be blown away. Well, this record's blowing me away. You know, I think it's a, a you know a totally unexpected triumph from Khalees at this stage in her career. I thought Milkshake was going to be her last great moment um, in pop music, and now she's come back on her sixth record, and maybe this is the best record of her career. It's a buy it for me. People can catch up with all of our reviews on soundopinions.org. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? 
Jim, next week we have an in-studio performance from a fascinating electro-rock duo, Dark Side. Greg, Sound Opinion senior producers are Robin Lynn and Jason Saldana. Our assistant producer is Anthony Martinez, and our intern is Jake Smith. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. You didn't try to call me. Why didn't you try, didn't you try, didn't you know I was lonely? No matter who I take home, I keep on calling your name. And you, I need you so bad, cause you're the one, babe. New messages. Hi, my name is Janine, and I'm calling from St. Petersburg, Florida. I'm 54 years old. I grew up in New York City, a very cynical and sarcastic place, and I absolutely love ABBA. I'm listening to your show about it, and um, I have to say that I listen to it sometimes on Friday at work because it's my happy Friday music. Their harmonies are fantastic, and I never get tired of it. Have a rock. Thank you. Hello, it's Gary Mofield. I live in Las Vegas. I'm listening to the radio program on ABBA. like their music very, very much. I was just at the ABBA Museum in Stockholm a few months ago, and it's a fantastic experience for anyone who likes ABBA. Really, really excellent uh, interactive-type museum. As a matter of fact, they have ABBA appearing on stage in a hologram, and you can actually get up on stage and sing with them. It looks just like you're singing with the band. What an experience. I have that on video. Anyway, one of the best groups of all time, I think. So I say thank you for the music, the songs I'm singing. Thanks for all the joy they're bringing. Who can live without it? Hey, what's going on, guys? John, down Colorado Springs way. Listen to you guys' show Friday night, driving home. I think it's a good show. I enjoy it. But uh, when you guys going to start moving into country music, man? Some good stuff out there. Good artists, good songs. Take a look. Take a gander. Y'all from Chicago, the old meat capital of the world. All them cowboys pushing their cattle to the train, make their way to Chicago. A little bit of history there for you. There's no Carolina over Chicago No bluegrass growing out in my backyard No fields of sugar cane No salt and gin But down in this living in Georgia heart Alright, well thanks for uh Thank you, Ms. Paul, guys. I'll see you all later. Hi, my name's is from Chicago. A long-time listener, first-time caller. I love the show. I loved your show last summer on music of the civil rights movement. 
And it got me thinking about the national anthem and how many of our really memorable recordings of the national anthem have been sung by minorities and how interesting their interpretation of the national anthem has been. I think of Marvin Gaye, he sang it twice. Can you see I think a show on the national anthem would be really interesting, and I'd love to hear what versions you guys would turn up. Thanks very much. Bye. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.